What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Long Game Podcast hosted by Thomas Kopelman and Trayton DeVore. In each episode, you'll hear us break down financial topics that are relevant to the lives of millennials and other young professionals. Our goal is to help bring credible financial information to you in short, bite-sized episodes. Thomas Kopelman and Trayton DeVore are the co-founders and financial planners at All Street Wealth. All opinions expressed by Thomas and Trayton are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of All Street Wealth. This podcast is for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only. It should not be considered advice. Please consult with your financial advisor, tax, legal, and any other advisors you have before making any decisions regarding your financial plan. Welcome to the 24th episode of The Crossroads, a weekly financial show for our generation. And for the listeners, welcome back to the Long Game Podcast. This week, we're joined by Peter Lazaroff, Chief Investment Officer at PlanCorp, which is a St. Louis-based financial planning firm that they manage a few dollars, a little over $4 billion. And today, we're going to dive into investing and how to handle volatility in the stock market because we've seen a lot of it lately. And just learning how to manage it is very important if you want to be a successful investor. Um, but before we get into it, Peter, we appreciate you coming on. And if you wouldn't mind giving the listeners just a little bit of context around what you do as a chief investment officer and a little bit about your journey into the financial industry. Well, Trayton Thomas, thanks for having me. I will try to keep it brief, but <laughs> my entire career has been working for what we call an RIA or a registered investment advisor. So just totally independent. We can use any products we want. You know, the only fees we get are from our clients. So it's really easy to act in a fiduciary capacity. When I came out of college, I didn't know what any of that meant. So I sort of got lucky right out the gate and stumbled into a firm that put their clients first and spent about eight years there as a portfolio manager and an analyst. And I moved to PlanCorp in 2015, I believe. That sounds right. Almost actually, almost exactly seven years ago to the day right now. And um, started there as director of investment research and eventually became chief investment officer, which chairs the investment committee and oversees the management of the, I believe we finished the year with about $6 billion actually in assets under management. So what that means is a lot of due diligence and funds, but it's also a lot of communication to our other advisors, communication to our clients. And those are the things that I find really exciting. It's part of what I love about what you guys are doing, um, both Thomas and Trayton here, in that when you get to educate people, you know, when you build this skill and this craft, it feels like when you can only use it for your clients, it's just not quite enough. And so that external communication, I get a lot of oh, excuse me, a lot of fulfillment out of. And I do some of that in a very public way. So I do byline articles for the Wall Street Journal and for Forbes. But most of my content these days, I've tried to focus back to just my own personal website, which is peterlazaroff.com. And I have a podcast, um, which is thelongterminvestor.com. Yeah. So you can go check that out. And a book called Making Money Simple. So basically, if there's a medium of communication, I've tried it out, minus TikTok. Um, and so you know, for me, writing or speaking is part of my own personal learning journey. And so hopefully your listeners today, I think we're going to talk about some things that the three of us are all pretty experienced with, but hopefully, you know, you all are going to come along for the learning journey with us. Yeah, Peter, but for you, like your, your career really started to take off from writing, right? Isn't that like in your first couple of years, you started writing just 
um, like research on the market. And then people across your firm started asking, hey, will you send us this to us so we can read it? And that's kind of like what helped you blow up, right? Yeah. What's so interesting is I was a terrible writer in mm -hmm. high school, in college. And some of that was that I'm not sure I did my homework fully in high school. In college, I started becoming interested in the major I had, which was economics, and that made it easier to write. And they were less concerned about grammar and more concerned about your ideas. And that allowed me to carry over into my role, starting really as an analyst and a portfolio manager, where you're right, Thomas, I was just bullet point notes every single day. And people started realizing internally that I was taking notes. And the reason I was taking notes is because I can't remember anything. My memory is terrible unless I write it down. But as I mentioned, to learn, sometimes I have to write stuff out. And ultimately, I'm circulating some bullet point notes, the big stories that are going on in the market or about certain stocks that were being covered. And those bullet points started turning into sentences and sentences into paragraphs. And then all of a sudden, I'm blogging and I have an email newsletter. And these days, everybody has an email newsletter. Every company has an email newsletter. But when I was writing an email newsletter, it wasn't table stakes assumption that a company had an email newsletter. So you're right. I did sort of get a head start. Unfortunately, I didn't start a blog until many years later. It was a big part of why I chose to go to PlanCorp because they really supported the building of my personal brand as yeah. just another entrance and introduction to the firm. So for me, I created a lot of opportunities at a young age from writing. They're all of the clients that came to me, I felt like I hid behind my writing. So it, when I was 25 and trying to go out and get people to give me their, their life savings, that's, a, that's sometimes daunting. And mm -hmm. I think the two of you do this really well. I follow you both on social media and, and listen to the podcast. And the thing is, youth is not necessarily a bad thing. If anything, it can be an advantage because you know that person's going to be there with you all the way through retirement. Whereas if you hire a 50-year-old, that, that person's going to retire on you. But showing that you had knowledge to me was so important. Now, I didn't put my face on it the way that you guys are. You're a little braver than I uh, <laughs> was back then. But also, there just wasn't podcasts. There wasn't YouTube videos in this way. And so the writing did end up helping me get lucky. You know, they say you make your own luck or you do all this preparation so that when you get an opportunity, you can convert. And I found that really to be true without all the writing. I, I would totally agree with what you said, Thomas, that my career trajectory would have been very, very different. Yeah, I, th I think that's super cool, especially because like is a big reason Trayton and I joined together is kind of what you're talking about. We both believed in writing and creating content and video and podcasts and leading with education. And like when I was exploring, you know, do I do this by myself? Do I join a partner? It was like, I want somebody who believes all of those same things. I mean, kind of same journey you have going to plan corp. You wouldn't have went somewhere that didn't believe in growing the way that you want to grow. So I love hearing that. And I think also like the being a bad writer in school, but being a good writer now is like something I hear from a lot of people. Like I was a terrible writer in high school. Like I always said my worst skill is writing. I never really had a good English teacher, but you're always taught how to write like in a way that was confusing and long. And now writing as a financial advisor is how do I write in a way that's simple and short? And so, you know, you might be bad at school, but now you can do it in a completely different way, which I think is, I mean, I lucked out for me that I can be good on this side of it. In practice, like anything else, if you take, if you, spend 10,000 hours on it, you'll be pretty good. And for me, I feel like I started writing at a time when blogs in the financial realm were becoming more popular and there were some really established names. 
And I don't know, I think I was self-conscious and competitive at the same time enough where I wanted to be considered at least average in terms of writing quality. I knew I had good ideas. It's just how could I convey them? And to your point, Thomas, simplicity was everything. And I made that the most important thing. You know, be clear and concise, be clear, not clever, you know, cut a word when you can. And over time, I think when you read really great writers like a Morgan Housel or a Jason Zweig, sometimes I'll read something and now I'll think, well, wait, why was that great? And I'll study it more, just like I'm studying the tape of a football game. Like what happened here that made it really resonate? And I actually, I didn't read that much in general in school, if I haven't made that already clear, but I read a ton now and I read a lot of fiction. And sometimes when I'm reading fiction, I think, holy cow, like that was incredible. And then sort of dissecting it there and becoming more a student of the craft than perhaps I had ever been in school itself. Yeah. And I'm curious because I started writing a lot last year, um, actually right about this time as well. And I mean, the, the biggest reason I first started was just to kind of get my thoughts around money out there and just to kind of like clarify my own thoughts and ways of thinking. Um, so I'm kind of curious, like over the years has writing kind of around the same topics, just in finance, like helped you refine your ways of thinking and your belief system. And then with putting that out there publicly, does it make it easier for maybe like the firm's clients to see like your guys's beliefs. And it's like, okay, if the market isn't this crazy, I've seen Peter write about the past four years. Like if the stock market drops in a day, like it should eventually come back up. Like, have you kind of seen that happen in your own practice? Absolutely. I think that I've strengthened my opinions. And even when somebody asks me a question, there's a strong chance I've written about it. And as a result, I have a response and I'm not thinking out loud on my way to the response. And many of the people I work with at PlanCorp know that I will think my way out loud to a response, which is great for podcasting, but terrible for a one-to-one -one <laughs> client interaction. Just give me the answer, Peter. But with writing, and you mentioned market volatility, that's a great example because last week, the S&P, as of you know, when we're recording this last week, the S&P 500 entered correction territory. And every single time that has happened in my career at PlanCorp, and even going back into my prior firm, I've sent out an email the day that the S&P losses crossed that 10% threshold. And it's basically a template at this point, because I say the same four things each and every time. You know, The first bullet point is sort of put it in historical perspective. So based on whatever the big headline is, like what's happened in other times this has happened, or if there's too many mushy headlines going together, as I thought there were this time, what happens when the market falls 10 to 15% in the following 12 months, 24 months, five years, et cetera? The second bullet point is always something along the lines of reacting can hurt performance. And I know you two for sure have seen that graph where it's like, if you miss the best one day in the market, the best five days, best 10 days, how catastrophic the loss and return is if you miss those best days and the best days tend to get pocketed in among the worst days. And so, you know, it's hard to go out and pull into cash because you have to get it right twice. You have to know when to exit as well as when to get back in. So really reacting to losses can be really harmful. The third point is always, Hey, losses are normal. And 
you guys kind of referenced this. If you tell your clients that over and over, especially when there aren't losses, well, then when the losses happen, they say, oh yeah, Peter said this was going to be normal. And the 10% losses are laughably normal. And the thing you know, you, that you asked Trayton, are there anything that really solidified my beliefs in writing about this over and over and over is I've seen the data so much and I've written it so much mm-hmm. that it's close to religion at this point. But if you know, I tend to joke internally when I send out this 10% loss email each and every time. I'm like, yeah, guys, just wake me up when we're down 30%. Because 30% is like a real thing. Um, one, it's historically an amazing entry point. Um, it's not always signaling that it's the bottom. But historically, if you get in when the market's down 30%, even if it falls you know, an additional 50% from there, like it did in the financial crisis, it was still an excellent, excellent entry point. But two, the the fact that 10% losses happen roughly every other year, um, I believe the average entry year loss going back to 1950 is 13.7%. So it's pretty normal. And it's sort of the cost of the higher returns you earn over the long term. So if you're a long-term stock investor, those returns aren't free. You know, If you sit there for a long period of time, you have to sit through the short-term uncertainty and volatility. And every time the market goes down 10 or 20 or 30%, it will feel like this time is different than most dangerous worlds in finance. It'll always feel scary. And the one thing that is always the same about crises is that they end. And so you just have to have the, the fortitude to stick with it. So that was a long rambling on the three points, as I said, thinking out loud. And the fourth point always in those emails is, hey, if you are worried about the downturn, the better thing to do than look at your portfolio is to look at your financial plan. Because I know you guys well enough to know when you build financial plans, you plan on losses occurring. And if you use any sort of Monte Carlo analysis, that means that you're planning on losses occurring with a similar magnitude and frequency as they have in the past. And so that way we don't have to predict when and why a downturn will start. We can just plan on it. And I know in our portfolios, we weren't planning on Russia invading Ukraine or inflation being at decade high, decades high levels, or the Fed potentially tightening faster than they'd planned or earnings growth starting to slow. We didn't plan for any of that. We just plan for the fact that the market's going to turn down like this every once in a while. And if we, as long as you stay the course, then the portfolios we've built should be able to endure over the long run. So that's a really good example of, I literally write that email. I just ripped off those four points. It's basically the same. Maybe I'll change a verb here or there and fill in underneath the bolded parts, but that's the same thing each and every time. And that's because good advice rarely changes. The world is constantly changing, but basically financial theory is so strong in the long run. It's just that the long run's an eternity to live through in the moment. And those good pieces of advice really just don't change as long as you stick to them. Yeah, I think those are great points. And especially with, I mean, definitely most of our clients being younger, like they have decades until retirement. Um, But something that I struggle with um, just kind of explaining sometimes because the numbers just like straight up always make sense to me. Like, and then you can show people the numbers and the math behind it, but like logic doesn't always resonate the same way that emotions do. So I was curious, like, if you had any explainers or go-to stories that you use to kind of help ease client concerns and make sense of whatever's happening when there's volatility outside of just like, yeah, this is kind of what it's done over time. It's historically recovered. But if someone came to you, like, this is like really stressing me out, something like that. 
Yeah. And I think you show people the numbers, you show them the frequency of loss, you show them the recovery, the typical length of correction. And I was hoping I could click around and pull a table quickly enough. I have a podcast <laughs> coming out tomorrow and I know that it's in the show notes, but I realize, oh, but that means it's not live now. So I'll have to try to work from memory here. But basically, anytime the market is down this much, um, you know, the returns 12 and 24 months from now are pretty darn good. And I thought Nick Majuli had an amazing blog post during the pandemic. And I know that the example is in his book, Just Keep Buying, of if you think about how long you think it's going to take the market to get back to even, you can calculate what your return is going to be. Um, and it's worth putting in your show notes. It is a fantastic example. And I'll shoot it to you guys afterwards, the blog post. And I think that during the pandemic, when we were down 30%, or 33%. I remember thinking, holy cow, yeah, because if we're going to be back in two years, because the average bear market lasts a little bit, um, a little bit less than two years, look at that annual average return. Holy cow, like I don't want to miss out on that. And mm. I think those are things that can help people, but there's definitely no better medicine to take or exercise to go through than knowing in advance that you're going to lose that. And if people are really freaking out, I think the challenge then is trying to find ways for them not to look. And that's really the hardest part. It's so easy to look at your portfolio. You know, hopefully if they hire an advisor, they know that the advisors got it. And I think that the communication that we advisors do during a downturn lets our clients know, hey, we're not necessarily changing the plan, but we have eyes on these important topics. You know, we are watching over your plan and making sure it's in place. But there's always going to be people who just are more anxious than others. And we're taught from a technical standpoint to tell people who have a lower willingness to tolerate risk to put more bonds in their portfolio. I'm somewhat convinced though, that like whether you have 50% stocks or hundred percent stocks, you're going to, you're going to panic if you're a panicky person. Um, and I think I really didn't realize that I, I started my career in 2007. So I only had a few months of normalcy before the financial crisis happened but watching people get a little more conservative then and watching them panic all the way up in the bull market run. And yeah, you know, they're just, they're just constantly panicked. And so constantly putting good articles in front of those people, I think is, is good. It's more of an ongoing thing as opposed mm -hmm. to if it's a one-time intervention, it's very, very difficult. Our brains basically tell us what, or you, know, we tell ourselves what we want to believe. And so it's slowly shifting the mindset over time is really the only way to go about it. Yeah, I think there's that interesting quote that's like uh, finance isn't really like a study of the market. It's more of a study of human behavior. And I always go back to this story that I talk about clients of like, we all know that every time there's this 10% drawdown or more, it's going to feel different. You know, I, I said that in the email to our clients as well. You know, this time is different. Like, oh, it's a war. Like that's different. Or hey, this is a pandemic. We haven't seen that before. But realistically, we're all just facing a different risk that are going to follow a very similar pattern. I think there's this story that I heard on a podcast, like when I first started my career and it was a guy who he was like known as one of the best financial advisors in the world. And it was from his financial advisor. And I, it was like, I think during 2008, he called his financial advisor and said, Hey, you know, the market's down 30%. We need to sell. And as a financial advisor, like you wrote a book about this, <laughs> like, 
you know exactly that you should not sell at this time. He's like, I know, but this time is different. Like we've never seen a collapse this big. Like it's going to be so many years away. I got it. I got to get back out. And actually it might not have been 2008. It might've been a different year that recovered quicker, but this, the story still comes true of like, we all know the information about how we're supposed to react until it's your own money and your own emotion. And that's why for like, for us last week, everything that happened I never really wanted to make it about money. Like, you know, the war and Ukraine, like helping all of them, like that's so important. But there's also this whole other side of like, it is natural for people to start to think about how this affects that. And our job is to make sure that our clients are thinking about things correctly and they're not going to make irrational decisions in that, in that time. And so I feel like, you know, the hardest thing about finance is that it is so emotional. And I think that's also kind of what you're talking about too, is why you should have a financial advisor is you need somebody that can help reinforce what to do and how you should do it when those emotions are really high and you can't think clearly. Yeah. And what's hard for people to realize about that, those who don't have an advisor is when things are going well, you think you're a genius. Yeah. And I think that's really been true the last couple of years, particularly for people who are buying individual stocks. I mean, individual stocks are so much riskier than people realize. And there's overwhelming data to show that most are going to underperform the broad market over the course of their lifetime. And yet people were making it easy money the past two years. And because there's been some washout, maybe people realize ah, I need some help now. And I think What's interesting is I know clients who came to me in the early 2010s saying, hey, like I got blown up in the tech bubble. I got blown up in the financial crisis. Like I'm done doing this. And there's, I don't know who said this. There's this thought experiment, something like how much money would you spend to know if you're a good stock picker? And the answer is going to be different for everybody. And the answer is going to be whatever your relative loss is to the market before you hire somebody. And that can be a really big number. It's a super expensive lesson. I mean, I was an individual stock analyst myself. And because a lot of the stock picking was happening in the beginning of a secular bull market, picks were really good. I just got lucky to have read enough things to understand it was almost entirely, entirely luck-based. And I think you know people understanding... Um, you know, some of the stuff that Michael Mobison puts out there about the paradox of skill, you, know, you can be the smartest person in the world, but everybody's smart and you either have to have better data, which is super unlikely. If you're an individual investor, just trust me, you don't have better data, but you have to either have better data or you have to be better than collectively everybody else in the world at interpreting that data. And boy, like that's a lot of bravado if you think that's you. And I think that people don't think of it that way when they're trading because it it more just feels like sports betting at this point. Um, and I think totally fine to do that. I personally don't hold individual stocks anymore. I do kind of miss it, but I did it in sort of a getting on my soapbox and saying like, I'm never going to do it again. And so I'm going to stick to it. But if you like have an account of play money, like sure, go nuts. Mm-hmm. Um, we always say 5%. I don't know if that's like really the right number. You know, it's sort of like if you go play blackjack and the $5 bets don't, do it for you and you want to play $25 bets. Like, I don't know, everybody's different, but you know, just know that the odds are very much not in your favor. And unlike a casino where the odds are fixed um, in investing, the odds are not fixed. Anything can happen. It's like picking a winning horse, like a horse that, you know, is supposed to win. Like every horse has a broken ankle, except for one. 
And then you bet on that one that's healthy and he just like jumps over the fence and runs away. Like you can't control that stuff. And that's, that's more of what investing's like, as opposed to, you know, the fixed odds of gambling. Yeah. And Thomas, I think you had a really good blog post that kind of went into like the difference between investing and gambling. And it's like kind of just everything that we're kind of alluding to of like, if you're a long-term investor, your odds of success in the market just keep going up and up for sure. Especially with a diversified portfolio. I mean, that's that's the difference. It's like you have long-term success. You can look at the odds. The odds can be in your favor until you decide that you're going to invest in, you know, individual stocks that you think are going to be the winners. And then that chance of success changes kind of to gambling situations. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And being diversified, particularly when you're in your 20s, feels unbelievably boring. Yeah. And I have a friend, so I'm in my mid thirties, late thirties, I guess, depending on where you want to drive the draw, draw the line. But I have a good friend who's an investment banker and he's been working on wall street his whole life. And he had a target date fund his 401k. And he was kind of complaining that it was trailing the market. And I was like, well, what do you mean by the market? Like S and P he's like, yeah. I'm like, well, there are bonds in your portfolio. He's like, oh yeah. And I'm like, and international. Oh yeah. And small cap, which is also doing, oh yeah. And like, People want, they know, like if you, if we polled everybody in the world, is it important to be diversified? Everybody would say yes. But in the moment, people hate being diversified because it means always owning the loser. Like you always own the worst, you always own the best. And I think one of the things that goes through cycles with at least one segment of, of the client population that we serve, and I'm sure this is true for you too, is that there's always people who are like, well, we don't want to be an international. That's been a total dog for the last decade. How could it possibly be any good? I spent the first half of my career having everybody say, oh, the U.S. is the worst. The dollar's just totally in trouble. We got to be all in the international. We definitely got to be all emerging markets. And, you know, it's roughly, great. I changed firms. I'm assuming the people were the same group roughly, even though I spent the first half and second half of my career elsewhere. But being diversified is really just about the math of it lowers volatility and compound interest works better at lower volatility. And I think if people understand that, that can help a little bit, but you also have to know like, Hey, and you'll know I'm doing a really good job as an advisor. If you're a little upset about part of your portfolio, like if you're a little disappointed, you're in something that's losing, like I've diversified you quite well. Um, And I think, again, it's a lot about setting expectations. We live with the data every day. And then you got all this media and uh, you have, now, finfluencers, how do you say influencers, financial influencers, which we are not, we're advisors. So I'm not going to put us in that camp of people who just kind of say things, but it's really hard. People make it seem easier than it actually is. Whereas the boring stuff, if you just sort of understand a little bit of the math behind it, you can get behind it when it feels like it's falling apart. Yeah, I, I actually had this conversation with a bunch of clients last year because like people are starting to get in the market more like as our younger clients grow, they see S and P 500 hit this percent, go look at their portfolio. And they're like, well, how come my portfolio didn't necessarily get that high percentage? Well, one, you know, this is your first year investing. You, you have $6,000 in your Roth, but you did 500 a month. So you're not going to get that same return because it's going to depend when the money puts in. And then the other side of it that I, I tried to send out an email to clients talk to everybody about is I showed them that periodic table of returns. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that chart where it shows like here last year, emerging markets was the top class. And then it'll show emerging markets was the second worst and then international and then bonds. And the whole goal of it is just to show people like, 
we cannot every single year look at what did last what did well last year and then change because if you look at what did well last year typically doesn't do well this year and so by having that diversified portfolio not always analyzing and making changes your job is I'm going to take advantage of emerging markets when it's here, but I'm also going to take the hit when emerging markets is here, which brings around that diversified portfolio that reduces standard deviation and better for compound interest over the long term, exactly like you said. But I think that most people don't think about that and realize that, and they always try to make change to their portfolio, which is why the DIY investor a lot of times can lose because they let that emotion of what happened last year make them change to how they're going to invest for this current year. And then they do it over and over and over and they end up missing out on the best classes every single time. Yeah. You can't just keep chasing performance over and over. And, and that's really what a lot of people, they try to avoid loss and they chase performance. You know, I think those are what like all the behavioral biases boil down to is roughly those two things. Um, you know, the fact that losses hurt more than gains feel good to us you know, that drives a lot of our choices. Um, and, and ultimately, I think when you hire an advisor, if you hire someone like the three of us, you are not hiring us because you're like, that guy's a genius. He's going to pick me the right funds and the right stocks. And, you know, he's going to just, he's going to outsmart everybody. He's going to really get me. No, that's not really what we do. Um, we're, if anything, behavioral babysitters. And I think the one thing in this circle is way back Trayton, to your question of are there any like truths from writing over and over that I've learned is that most investment success just comes down to minimizing mistakes. And if you minimize, if you have mistakes, that interrupts compound interest. So I remember doing crazy things to max out my 401k and IRA my first year out of college. Like I was making a thing of spaghetti and eating it all week and like making the same turkey sandwich and oatmeal every single day, just had the same meal three, like every single day of the week. It was crazy, but I did it. And I knew that because, because I got that early start, as long as I didn't, if it's long as I just left it there, I was going to be fine. Yeah. And when we're left to our own devices, we, our money, like it's deeply ingrained with us to react to things that are scary. And so when you're losing your money, you want to do something. And the best thing to do is nothing. Usually now maybe you rebalance your portfolio, maybe you tax loss harvest. Those are good things to do, but realistically, unless this is your full-time job, like you open yourself up for more mistakes. And there's a certain point in time where people stop doing their taxes on their own or hire an attorney to do stuff. Or, I mean, obviously we'll all go to the doctor for medical issues. I, I don't think it's even as complicated as people are like, well, you wouldn't do brain surgery on yourself. Well, duh, but it's not <laughs> that complicated. What we do, you have to take time to learn it, but yeah. if you do it correctly, there is a big difference. Um, the big example that I always give is mowing my lawn. Like I can mow my lawn. I used to mow my lawn. I did not kill my grass. That was the benchmark of, yep, I did. Okay. I didn't kill my grass. I'm doing fine. Okay. But then I hired somebody and my yard went from looking like fine or maybe I'd be like, yeah, it looks pretty good. My yard started looking really nice. Like <laughs> I hired somebody and they're doing all the little things that either I've heard of, but don't actually know how to do or things I've never heard of. And not only that, they're doing it when they're supposed to. They're not like if I, my buddies are playing golf on Saturday, I'm like, yeah, I'll mow the grass tomorrow. And I don't check the weather and suddenly it rains Sunday and now I got work and I can't mow the grass till after work. And, you know, and then the grass gets all messed up again. It's not that what we do is super, super complicated. I mean, I think there is 
definitely you want someone who is educated and credentialed and all of that. But the big thing is that we're constantly focused on it. And that's the same thing. If you get a coach, you know, if you go get a personal trainer and a dietitian, like that's going to change how you look. If someone mows your lawn for you, it's going to look better than if you do it yourself. Like hiring a professional is always going to make it look better. And with investing, because success is really, in my opinion, all about minimizing mistakes, you know, an advisor will probably pay for a lifetime of fees by helping you avoid like one giant mistake. Yeah. Now, a lot of what we do is like kind of nudge people, small little shifts over time. And it's really hard to notice these small shifts over time turn into enormous results. Um, but ultimately that's sort of where I see the value lying in, in what we do for people as it pertains specifically to investing. Yeah. We, we had Carl Richards on last week and, you know, he had two points. Yeah. I saw that. That was great. Yeah. He had two points that hit on exactly what you just said. He said one, like you are one mistake a year away from wiping out all of the progress that you could make. And whether that's, Hey, I picked, you know, this fund in my 401k that has a 5.75% front load fee and a one and a half percent uh, annual fee versus, you know, the, the cheap index fund in there, that could be one. It could be another that I sell out of the market when I am fearful of this or another one of, Hey, I got a bonus of $5,000 that I throw into a meme stock that went to zero that I didn't think about. Like whatever it is, you're one mistake away every year from getting rid of all the progress that you possibly could have made. And then the second one that he really talked about is just that, like that value of having somebody else there to bounce ideas off of, to make sure that you're on the right path to course correct and really just continue to nudge you in that right, right direction. And he used this, like basically a flight path, you know, like you're on one side of the world, you're going to the other side of the world and, you know, this is our goals in life. And for us to get there where it's never going to follow the plan that we think it's going to be, but it's also really easily, really easy to not notice one small change and end up in a completely different spot than you ever really wanted to go. And I felt like those relate really well to what you just said. Yeah. Well, Carl's the man. So anything that I'm saying that's like Carl is, uh, is a compliment times a million for me. <laughs> Carl, Carl's the best. Um, I guess like to wrap up, like if you, what advice would you give to people who are feeling really uneasy right now about kind of the volatility in the market and what, you know, what should they be thinking of and what should they do as, you know, the next few months might be a very similar pattern? Sure. Well, I think accepting the idea that volatility is not the enemy and in many ways it's your friend. So the younger you are, the more you should want prices to be lower because that means you get to buy lower. If given the choice of having good returns at the beginning of your career and bad at the end or bad at the beginning and good at the end, you'd want bad at the beginning and good at the end, just like from a math standpoint, we won't yeah. walk through all those numbers. But I think if you're, you know, try to view anytime the market is down as an opportunity, it's the most common thing is, oh, the stock market's the only place people don't like things on sale. You know, they get scared of it and look, it is scary. I don't want to pretend it can't be scary. Um, just know that it is normal and it will end. And as long as you don't need the money, who cares? Like there, is there ever a 30 or 40 year period where stocks haven't gained? And if you're, that's your horizon, if some of it's for retirement, you know, then you're all good. And I think if you kind of pictured a newspaper that only came out once a decade, all you would see, regardless of if the newspaper came out right this second and they're in the midst of a war and a pandemic, think of all the amazing headlines 
that would happen because there hasn't been a newspaper printed in 10 years. Like if you think of the just vast change in innovation and when you buy stocks, you're basically placing a bet on capitalism and the human spirit. So in many ways, as long as the heads of these big corporations like making money, sure, the rules may change, sure, the landscape may change, but yeah, temporarily we go through cycles. These companies still enjoy making money. So that's really what you're betting on. And uh, you know, being anything other than an optimist has been a terrible bet in the stock market long-term. Yeah. No, I think those are really interesting points. And I think sometimes it's helpful to like frame of like private investment. So let's say I'm somebody, I have my friend's business, really great idea. I give them $10,000. It gets me a few percent ownership of that company. It's like, if three years from now that company is doing pretty well, but the market takes a downturn, like we're in some type of recession, whatever, are you going to go sell your investment in that company because of all these other external factors? Or do you still believe in where that company is going because you invested in the right thing? Like you're not able to see those daily shifts in a private investment, which typically helps you hold on longer, which is again, I think a reinforcement for our clients or anybody of tracking your investments every single day is not the best thing to do. Like I'm a financial advisor and I don't even look at the market every single day, but I know other people that check 10 times a day, the value of their crypto portfolio, their stock portfolio, whatever. You can't expect to do something like that and make good progress. Like think about if you equate this to weight loss, like imagine if you weighed yourself eight times a day to see the progress that you're making. Like Nobody would ever do that because that's not how you make progress over that period of time. And so I think to just wrap this up, it's always good to start to take your investments at, a, at a, as far of a view as you can, especially because our audience, our clients are people that we're not investing any money that needs to be used in the next five to 10 years. And most of our money that's being invested is 30 to 40 years down the line. Understand that, continue to invest, look at all these downturns as opportunities to accumulate more equity from the retirees who are selling out at this period of time because they need to live off of that money and stay the course. I think that's really like the best advice we can all give as we just think about market volatility. Couldn't agree more. Anything else for anybody wants to add before we wrap up? I think so. Okay. Well, perfect. Well, Pierre, we really appreciate you coming on and sharing this. I know that you're an expert on this and I also didn't say this before, but when I first started the industry, I, I've, I've told this to Carl Richards, a couple other people I've had on, but I actually stumbled upon your blog and it was like the first way I got to really learn about what true financial planning is and all the topics you can actually help advise clients on. So know that your content makes a difference, not only for consumers, but also us younger financial advisors who are really trying to learn. So thank you for all you do and thank you for coming on and hopefully we'll bring you back on again soon. Hey, I appreciate those kind words. I'll come on anytime, guys. Thanks so much. Thank you.